Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the creation of life and biological diversity, part 10. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Today we come to our eighth and final interpretive alternative of Genesis chapter 1, and I'm calling this the monotheistic Hebrew myth interpretation. The monotheistic Hebrew myth interpretation. And as a springboard for understanding this interpretation, I want to appeal to a book by a pair of evangelical scholars, uh, Johnny Miller and John Soden, called In the Beginning, We Misunderstood, published in 2012. Now, Miller and Soden are professors at Columbia Bible College and Lancaster Bible College, both with doctorates from Dallas Theological Seminary. So they have conservative bona fides which are simply impeccable. They can't be accused of being uh, radical liberal or progressive scholars. And they argue in their book that Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is not to be taken literally. And they rehearse the evidence against a literal interpretation of the text, which we've reviewed already in this class when we discussed the literal interpretation. They also agree with the literary framework view of the French scholar Henri Blochet uh, that the days are not chronologically ordered in Genesis 1, but rather are ordered in a kind of parallel or thematic fashion that doesn't imply a chronological week of days. Moreover, they agree with John Walton's view that creation begins with verse 2 of the text and not with verse 1. So in all of these respects, their view is familiar and not new. But what is distinctive about their view is the way in which they understand the Genesis account in relation to ancient Near Eastern mythology. They maintain that the key to correctly interpreting Genesis 1 is to compare it with Egyptian creation myths. Now, they also survey Mesopotamian Uh, myths and Canaanite myths as well, but they think that these bear few resemblances to Genesis 1. But, they point out, Israel was in Egypt for some 400 years, and the Israelites had come to worship Egyptian deities. And when we compare Genesis 1 uh, to the Egyptian creation myths, then very significant similarities as well as differences emerge. And the differences help us to see the ways in which Israel sought to correct these pagan myths. Now, reconstructing an Egyptian creation myth is extraordinarily difficult. Um, They admit, and I quote, 
There is no single Egyptian account known to date that describes the complete Egyptian perspective on creation. Instead, we have to put together a mosaic of bits and pieces recorded in various documents. These documents represent a mixture of times and theologies covering more than two millennia, many of them in tension with one another, a situation that did not seem to bother the Egyptians. For the most part, Egyptian creation documents consist of brief statements or allusions scattered among many inscriptions such as pyramid texts, coffin texts, the Book of the Dead, and other inscriptions. So there really isn't a creation story available in Egypt, but they cobble together these various inscriptions from uh, tombs, uh, from coffins, from various other monuments, and in that way try to construct a coherent picture of what these Egyptian theologians believed about creation. Now they summarize the Egyptian creation myth in the following way, and I'm going to read now a very lengthy quotation of their summary of the view of creation in these Egyptian myths. Quote, Before the beginning of creation, there was only an infinite, dark, watery, chaotic sea. There was nothing above the sea or below the sea. The sea was all there was. Immersed in this sea, Atom, one of the Egyptian deities, or Amun, or uh, Re, you can take your pick, or Ptah, all different Egyptian deities, in this sea, there was immersed Atom or Re or Ammon or Ptah, the creator god and the source of everything. He brought himself into existence by separating himself from the waters. Egyptian cosmologies that view Ammon as the creator or as even one of the four initial qualities of the pre-creation matter, namely watery, unlimited, dark, imperceptible. Those are the four characteristics of the primordial sea. Watery, unlimited, dark, imperceptible. Those myths that view Ammon as the creator or one of these qualities from which creation emerges would then also understand the wind to be present in the water because Amun was also the god of wind. Since Atum, Amun, and Re are all connected with the sun, light was then in existence even though the sun itself had not yet risen. They go on. While several means of creation are used interchangeably in the Egyptian accounts, including sneezing or spitting and masturbation, uh, in many accounts, Atom, or one of the other gods noted above, spoke the universe into existence. This new creation, um, or the universe as conceived by the Egyptians, 
began with the separation of the waters to create the atmosphere, a bubble of air known as the god Shu, S-H-U. Shu was the god of the sky or the atmosphere. Created uh, uh, this atmosphere in the midst of the endless mass of water. Atom's command separated the surface of, uh, surface of the waters in the sky, which is the goddess Nut. <laughs> Some of you are saying this it sounds nuts. Um, it separated the waters in the sky, Nut, from the earth, uh, which is the god Geb. The waters receded and the first mound of earth appeared. The sun, or ray, already in the waters, noon, before the separation of the atmosphere, rose for the first time as the main event of creation. And so the basic universe was formed, a bubble of light, air, earth and sky in the continuing infinity of dark, motionless water. They go on, the universe was actually composed of thousands of gods, all of which were part of Atom in the Egyptian understanding because all the elements and forces that a human being might encounter in this world are not impersonal matter and energy, but forms and wills of living beings, beings that surpass the merely human scale and are therefore gods. Into this universe, Atom commanded the creation of plants and animal life, Ray formed man as his image, or Knum, yet another Egyptian deity, Knum formed man on um, his potter's wheel um, with the breath of the god giving life to the image. In some accounts, man springs from the tears of the eye of uh, Atom, uh, the sun. After speaking into existence the universe and its millions of gods with their towns, shrines, and offerings, Ptah rested with everything in order. In Egyptian theology, all of creation was done in a single day, which was called the first occasion. At the end of the day, when the sun traveled um, through the Egyptian underworld, it fought the enemies of order to arise victorious the next day. So when the sun sets, it goes through the underworld and fights with the uh, deities of the underworld, which would bring disorder until it rises again uh, the next day. Each succeeding day reenacted the creation event. The sun had won its victory over the enemies again and begun a new day of order. Now, is there any question uh, that anybody might have about this composite Egyptian myth of creation? Yes, over here, please. You say it's composite. Is there any one thing that's true of all of them? Any, any part of this yes, that's true I, I do. for all? That's a, that's a very good question because I can't emphasize enough that there is no coherent unified account. This is a, a, a mosaic that's been cobbled together by these modern scholars that represents different theologies from different Egyptian cities like Heliopolis, 
uh, Thebes and Memphis, and they've cobbled it together. Uh, and these texts are spread over more than 2,000 years. So are there any elements that are common? I think, and we'll talk about this more later, that one of the most principal common elements would be what we could call monism. Um, Namely, that multiplicity and diversity all emerge from an undifferentiated primal state of affairs. And this was represented by water and darkness, because water is so amorphous it it can take any sort of shape. Um, In their thinking, they were unaware of the molecular structure of water, of course, so it seemed a suitable symbol to represent this undifferentiated, absolute, primordial condition in which there were no distinct things. And what happens then is that the god uh, brings himself into existence out of this state. It's not that he's uncreated. I, I looked at the text to see, well, maybe they think he just came into being uncaused. No, the texts say he created himself. Um, so that would seem to be a common element to all of these. And then, of course, polytheism. This is really, or these myths are more theogonies than cosmogonies. Uh, a cosmogony, as you can see from the word cosmos, a cosmogony is an account of the origin of the world. But a theogony, as you can see from the word theos, which means God, is an account of the origin of gods. And so these are properly speaking theogonies um, about how the gods come into being out of this primordial, undifferentiated condition. So those would be a couple of elements that would be common to all of them. Any other discussion? Ben. I believe you referred to Israel during the 400 years they were in Egypt. Were you saying they could be categorized as polytheistic during the time they were there? Or some of them maintaining their monotheism that they got from Abraham as when he moved I think moved what in. Miller and Soden are referring to is that some of the Israelites had figurines or statues of Egyptian deities in their homes um, and that therefore they had become infected with Egyptian religion And for that reason, they think it shouldn't be so surprising if these old traditions underlying Genesis would betray some of the influences of these Egyptian religions. But I don't think they're suggesting that they were out-and-out polytheists. Yeah, this was especially curious to me. I have a close friend of mine who's saying that Israel didn't become monotheistic Mm. until after Egypt and much later. And so your reference to elements of polytheism in Israel and Egypt was especially curious to me, and I was wondering how accurate or how, how true yeah, that would be. So. Yeah. I, I'm only responding to what their view sure. of this is, and I don't think they commit themselves to so radical a thesis. All right, now Miller and Soden um, draw various points of similarity with Genesis, but also point out significant differences. What they maintain is that the goal of the author of Genesis is not to correct the physical descriptions found in these Egyptian creation stories, but rather to correct the theology of 
creation. For example, the author of Genesis, they say, completely demythologizes the natural world. He gets rid of all of these gods and goddesses and instead has a single creator god who is the source of everything else and who is not himself um, self-created or comes out of the primordial water but is rather a uh, transcendent and sovereign deity. So they write, and I quote, In most cases, the biblical writer uses common motifs to demonstrate the stark differences in the Hebrew presentation of God. In other words, the considerable differences show that Genesis is not copying but recasting the events of creation in order to argue strongly for a different theology." So the people of Israel reject the polytheistic pagan myths and substitute for it, as it were, a Hebrew monotheistic myth uh, about the creator God of Israel. Now here is how they summarize the Hebrew creation theology which is opposed to the creation theology of Egypt. And I quote, Moses does not directly dispute the events of creation, but he uses common Egyptian perceptions of creation to present a radically different and unique understanding of God and his relationship to man in this world. To summarize these distinctions, still quoting, one, God in Genesis exists independently of creation and is not created or self-created. God in Genesis exists independently of creation and is not created or self-created. Two, God alone transcends creation. There are no other deities, no other transcendent beings. God alone transcends creation. Three, God is sovereign over all creation. There is no sort of uh, warring factions, no sort of obstacle to be overcome. Rather, God is completely sovereign over the created world. Four, God alone is deity. God alone is deity. Not only is there no account of the creation of gods, there is the clear implication that no other gods are created. So it's not simply that God is over the hierarchy of other deities, but there aren't any other deities. Uh, There are no other gods that God has created. Five, mankind has great significance and value as God's image. Mankind has great significance and value as God's image. Mankind, they say, replaces the sun as the central focus of creation and the climax of that creation. And finally, six, Israel was to celebrate the rule of God in their lives by imitating their creator in work and rest each week. Israel was to celebrate the rule of God in their lives by imitating their creator in work and rest each week. 
they say this weekly respite presents a dramatic shift from the daily conquest of the sun god over chaos, his rebirth each morning, and the daily grind of uncertainty in each Egyptian day. Any question uh, or discussion of those six distinctives of the Jewish uh, theology of creation in contrast to Egypt? Yes. So just to clarify the purpose of this, uh, this idea here is to say that the, there's a possibility that the account of Genesis is not a literal account. It's more a corrective, just a theological corrective. Yes. Yes, that's right. That we shouldn't be surprised on their view if the Genesis account retains a lot of these mythological elements like the primordial darkness and the water, uh, the the spirit of God or the wind moving over the surface, um, things of that sort, because that would be the cultural background of Israel. But what the um, Israelites sought to correct in this was, I think we could say fairly, principally, they sought to correct polytheism Mm -hmm. and replace it with monotheism. Uh, And that then results in a very different kind of God. Now it's not one that's self-created or created by other deities, but it's a transcendent God, a God who's over all creation. There are no other gods. Uh, The substitution of monotheism for polytheism represents a very radical break with these pagan myths. Yeah, so uh, I guess later are you going to like maybe point out some biblical like whether whether how the Bible would address that that concept itself or if well, it does. Well, we will give a critical analysis of this <laughs> okay. view. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Uh, we'll start that next week. Um, but right now we're just trying to lay out uh, fairly um, the view that they express. Yes, down here in the front. So if I'm following correctly, this isn't to be kind of confused with the anti-rights view, but this is uh, not necessarily a polemic against the Egyptian mythology then. Ah, I'm not aware that that's anti-rights view, but that certainly is a view that is popular among certain Old Testament commentators. Um, I think, for example, of uh, Gerhard Hassel, who published a widely quoted article many years ago, uh, in which he argues that um, you can see the influence of Mesopotamian or Egyptian mythology in the creation account, but the creation account in Genesis is meant, as you just said, to be a polemic against these views. So they, they reflect them in terms of their opposition to them, rather than adopting certain motifs. Um, and that doesn't seem to be Miller and Soden's view. They would agree that there is this radical departure from polytheism and the substitution of monotheism. But they seem to be more blasé about leaving in place these other mythological aspects of the creation story um, so long as the theology is corrected. And so it's related. Both of those views 
apostles as well as theirs, would see that this should be read against this background, the, the cultural background of pagan mythology of Mesopotamian Egypt, but the one sees it more as a reaction to it, whereas I think it, it's not unfair to say that on their view it assimilates a lot of it, but radically departs from it in its monotheism. And that's why I called this view, and this is my own label, this is not their label, my own label, I called it Hebrew monotheistic myth. Cindy. To clarify for me, <laughs> are we saying then that the understanding of who God is in the creation, although it was not fully understood by mankind going back to Abraham and so forth, when they went into Egypt, they were influenced by the Egyptian religion and incorporated perhaps a lot of the beliefs of the Egyptian people. Mm -hmm. And when Moses or whomever wrote Genesis, it was really to kind of acknowledge where they had picked up these concepts, but then to clarify or correct or redirect the thinking into a more accurate, as they understand that was revealed by God, of the actual creation story? Well, almost, Cindy. That was a very beautiful summary. I, I would say, except for the last couple of words, that it was meant to correct the concept of God in these accounts. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Matt? So you said uh, they, they think that verse 2 is the start of creation. Does that mean they would hold that verse 1 as the title? Of, I take it that that's right. That okay. we, we talked about this before. Many scholars think that verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is not the first event of the creation. Rather, it's a sort of title of the chapter, much as you might have in a study Bible where it would have the title of the chapter. And that seems to be Miller and Soden's view. I argued against that in an earlier uh, class, but this, this is their view. So for them, and that's important because you see, if you say that view, the title view, then that makes Genesis look a little more like these Egyptian stories. Where do they begin? They begin with the primordial, watery darkness. And Miller and Soden are not unwilling to call this chaos even. That the, the Genesis begins with a state of chaos, um, and that um, is more plausible if you excise verse 1 and make it just a summary or a title. Yes, Ben. I was wondering what you thought of the idea that uh, monotheism would have predated polytheism, and if that it's possible that Moses used source material uh, in giving us the creation account so that he may not have been the actual originator of the story, if in which case the Genesis story would predate Mesopotamia and even Egypt possibly, yeah. and then th that would make this whole idea more of a uh, something God did in advance of knowing that people would go this direction as yeah. opposed to responding to it directly. I'm not sufficiently expert in the history of religions to be able to speak to that, Ben, as to how far back a kind of primitive monotheism reaches. Certainly some people have defended such a view. Um, 
But I, I do think we need to be very open to the idea that what we have in Genesis embodies very old traditions that go uh, far back in advance of the Exodus. Nobody really knows the date of the composition of the Pentateuch or the time that Genesis was reduced to writing or how far back the oral traditions go. It, it's really conjecture. So any conclusions that are founded on giving firm dates to those sorts of things, I think are, are rendered more uncertain by that. Jonathan. Um, if I can channel my inner Van Inwagen for a moment, uh, <laughs> I'll say um, the idea of a chaos is just unintelligible to me. Um, <laughs> well, you, you need to understand Jonathan's background for this question. Peter Van Inwagen is infamous. He's a Christian philosopher for saying of views that he wants to criticize or disagree with, I just don't understand what you're saying. And in Van Inwagen's hands, this is a devastating critique because you would think that an intelligent and informed person would understand the view. And so when he says, I don't understand it, this is a way of saying your view is unintelligible. Yeah. And you're saying that's the case with chaos. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea what's being... And can you explain yourself as to why you find um, that difficult to about understand? There being, for example, an infinite amount of water, or, or yeah. just water, but there's going to be empty space, uh, quantum vacuum, things like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree with you in large measure, Jonathan. And it is a source of irritation to me the way Old <laughs> Testament scholars who are untrained in either science or philosophy throw around the word chaos. Um, I'm going to argue later on that the state of affairs described in Genesis 1 verse 2 is anything but a chaos. A chaos is an utterly lawless state in which anything can happen. And that is clearly not the state of the earth in Genesis 1 2. Uh, I, I think it, it could be used to describe these Egyptian myths if we take water and darkness to be merely symbols or representations, not literal, of this uh, primordial, undifferentiated, uh, monistic state. All right, let me wrap up here then with a summary. The force of the title of Miller and Soden's book, In the Beginning We Misunderstood, seems to be that we have misunderstood the type of literature that Genesis is. Their book raises the question whether Genesis is not also of the genre of myth, as are the Egyptian accounts of creation. The difference between them lies not in their literary genre, but rather in their theology. In contrast to the polytheistic Egyptian myths, Genesis is a monotheistic Hebrew myth. So that will be the view that we will then begin to assess when we meet next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. And now may the God of creation who spoke the worlds into being and who created in us a new spirit and a new heart fill you and equip you to live for the praise of his glory throughout this week. In the name of Jesus our Lord, amen.
The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.